Welcome to the Cove's Body, Mind and Soul series. In this episode, we will be discussing the Islamic faith. Our guest speaker for this episode is Imam Ahmed Abdul. Imam is currently the Religious Advisor Committee for the Islamic Faith and the President of the Council for Imams New South Wales. We are also joined again by Chaplain Grant, who will assist with the discussion. Imam, welcome and thanks for supporting the Cove. What is the Islamic faith and can you provide a brief overview of this belief? First of all, thanks so much for inviting me to this episode. It's a great privilege and pleasure to be able to contribute uh, and to explain a little bit about my experience and the framework that underpins the Islamic faith. We've all heard of the word Islam. Islam has two meanings. One is surrender or submission and the other is peace. One of the names of God in Arabic is As-Salam. As-Salam means the source of all peace. One of the names for paradise that Muslims have, as noted in our scriptures, is Dar-Salam. Dar meaning the abode or the home, and Salam meaning peace, so the abode of peace. The greeting of a Muslim, whenever they meet each other, is As-Salamu Alaikum, meaning peace be upon you. The religion of Islam itself revolves around peace and surrender. Essentially, that peace and serenity can only be achieved through submission and surrender. But there are two entities that one can surrender to, either a created being or a creator. So Muslims see God, or as known as in, in Arabic as Allah, as being their creator. So surrendering to the will of the creator eventuates in peace and tranquility. Muslims don't see Islam as being a new faith or religion, but rather the religion of all prophets and messengers. Because the creed that all prophets and messengers taught was belief in one God, belief in living a good life, belief in judgment and accountability after death, and a life after death as well. The different legislation, the codes of law that were revealed to various prophets and messengers Muslim believed throughout the ages tended to differ pertaining to the time, the place, and the environment. So the detailed laws of marriage and divorce, of inheritance, of trade, buying and selling, of different ways of worship may have been slightly varied. But the essence of belief in the oneness of God and his mighty attributes and belief in an afterlife were essentially all the same. So in fact, Muslims see Adam as being the first prophet and messenger of God, but they also see him as being a Muslim. Likewise, Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael and Moses and Jesus, all being prophets and messengers. And in fact, a Muslim wouldn't be considered a Muslim unless they embraced all previous prophets and messengers, including Moses and Jesus. Islam itself is generally explained through one event where it was noted that the angel Gabriel came in the form of a man and asked the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, a series of questions. The first of them was, what is Islam? And so the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him, says Islam is to bear witness and testify that there is no God worthy of worship, save Allah, and that Muhammad is the messenger of God, to establish the prayer, to fulfill the fasting, to pay the charity, and to undertake the pilgrimage once in a one's lifetime, if you are able to do so. The next question that came was, what is faith? In Arabic, what is Iman? Iman is an Arabic word 
that is derived from another word that its root meaning is security. So in a sense, you achieve as a Muslim security and peace through faith. So the response of the Prophet Muhammad was, faith or Iman is to believe in God, to believe in his prophets and messengers, to believe in the previous dispensations, revelations that God would reveal of his verbatim word to his messengers, to believe in the angels, to believe in the last day, meaning a day of judgment, and finally to believe in predestination, the good and the bad of it being from God. Now to explain all of those six, if you like, pillars of faith itself is an in-depth lecture, but the last question in the series of three, because it's given three dimensions, the last question was from the angel Gabriel to the Prophet Muhammad, what is Ihsan? Ihsan in Arabic means spiritual excellence or beauty. So the Prophet said, Ihsan or spiritual excellence is to worship God as though you see him. And even though you cannot see him, to surely know that he sees you. So if we take those three dimensions of the religion of Islam, we have that which is connected to belief, belief in the mind and the heart, that which is connected to physical practice, devotional worship, and then that which is connected to making everything that you do in your life beautiful and having presence of God in everything that you do. Muslims take the Qur'an as being their holy book. The Qur'an is seen as the revealed word of God to the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, which in 6th century Arabia, it was narrated that he used to go for retreat and meditation in a cave on top of a mountain. You can go visit the mountain even today. It's called the Mountain of Light in Mecca, which is one of the holiest cities for Muslims and where many of the acts of the pilgrimage that a Muslim must do, these ones in their lifetime, that's where it happens. So whilst he was there, he was visited by that same angel, the angel Gabriel. And he revealed upon him, he uttered words to him. First thing he says, first was, he embraced him from behind, he held him tight, and then he says to him, recite. In Arabic he said, Iqla, recite. The Prophet said, I don't know how to recite. I don't know how to read. He interpreted as read. He was illiterate. Many of the Arabs at that time didn't know how to read nor write. He was none, none different. So uh, he says, I don't know how to read. So the angel repeats a second time, recite. He says, I don't know how to recite. So the third time he says, repeat, recite in the name of your Lord who created. And then he narrated the first five verses from the chapter that was revealed of the Qur'an, known as the chapter of recital. That being the verbatim word of God, Gabriel the angel would deliver those words of revelation directly to the Prophet Muhammad over a series of 23 years. So Muslims view the Qur'an not being revealed in one piece, in one go, but rather different circumstances in the lifetime of the Prophet Muhammad where people would ask him questions, where problems would be presented to him, and he would wait for answers to come from God through the angel Gabriel. And every year, for the next 23 years, the angel Gabriel would come once a year in the month of Ramadan, which is, a, again, a holy month for Muslims, which is the month of the obligatory fasting, and the angel would recite all of the verses that had been revealed up until that point in time. The Prophet Muhammad would repeat them. He would deliver the verses and he would recite them to his disciples, to his companions, who would then memorize them by heart. So by the end of 23 years, you had multiple numbers of people, of his disciples, who had memorized that holy book. 
And 14 centuries later, that tradition remains, where Muslims will have all around the world a focus on the memorization of the Qur'an, and it being one of the uh, main parts of the prayer that Muslims pray five times a day. So a Muslim must pray five times a day, and during that prayer, there is a series of standing, of bowing, of prostration, and sitting, with different invocations that are uttered in different moments of that prayer, and different meanings to bring to mind in order to draw a person away from the busyness and the engagement of our mundane world to a space which is going to be tranquil where they can reconnect with their purpose. Thanks, Amar. That's quite a detailed answer um, and very useful. How does the Islamic faith support a believer and what difference does it make to the individual? God says in the Quran, if indeed you support God, God will come to your support. There's this idea and understanding that how can I as a Muslim be supported? It's by supporting God. But then you come and you think to yourself, well, if I see God as being all-powerful, as the creator of the heavens and the earth, then what sort of support is some insignificant being like me going to give him? The understanding is no good that I do is going to benefit God. And no bad or act of disobedience or sin that I do is going to harm God. Therefore, the question then arises, well, to whom is the benefit going to come to and to whom is the harm going to come to? Well, it's myself and to society. So the first thing for a Muslim to understand is that the concept of the best of people are those who are best to others. So when you come to support other people, you're in fact supporting your own faith and your own relationship with God. There's one beautiful tradition of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, which is generally considered to be the first saying that a, what we call a hadith master, a hadith master, hadith is an Arabic word, has several meanings, but in this context it means the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. So we have the Quran on one hand, considered as being revealed verbatim word of God, whilst we have the other speech of the Prophet Muhammad, which isn't the speech of God, but it's inspired but it's his own words and it's his own speech. That's the hadith. Both are two primary sources of legislation in Islam. So in one of his sayings, and this is generally taught by scholars of the sayings and the transmissions of the Prophet Muhammad to their students as being the first transmission that they teach their students. Traditionally in Islamic societies, you would have tens of thousands of students coming to seek knowledge of the Islamic sacred sciences and great, from great authorities, professors, if you like. They would sit in his company, and he would begin to narrate. He would say, I heard my teacher who heard his teacher, and he would name his teachers who heard his teacher, who heard his, he might name 15 or 20, all the way back saying, I heard this disciple say who's, who heard directly from the Prophet Muhammad. So that unbroken chain of transmission. And then he would say, the Prophet Muhammad said, those who are merciful uh, will be shown mercy by the all-merciful. Show mercy to those on earth, and the one in the heavens will show mercy to you. So this initial principle that any student of Islamic knowledge receives is this principle of mercy, of compassion, of kindness. In order for you to derive any benefit through the religion of Islam, you need to be able to apply this principle of mercy. That's where you're going to get the support. And if we look to the Qur'an, there are 114 chapters in the Qur'an. We call them surah in Arabic. At the beginning of every single one of these chapters, except one, 
it starts with the words, in the name of God, the most gracious, the most merciful. God could have used any one of his other attributes or names, but he chose to use grace, mercy, kindness, compassion, for it to be a means of a reminder for us. And he also says with regard to his prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him, in the Quran he says, and I have not sent you except as a means of mercy to the entire worlds. So how do we derive that support from the religion of Islam as a Muslim? It's by understanding how is it that I can extract that principle of mercy and apply it in order to be merciful to myself and in order to be merciful to those that are close around me, that agree with me, and also to be merciful with those who may seek to spark a conflict with me, who may be disagreeing with my views and my ways. On a daily basis, a Muslim is going to be reconnecting to their Lord five times a day. And in that reconnecting to one's Lord, you perform what's called an ablution. Now, that ablution is a series of movements whereby you come in contact with fresh, pure water. God has a verse in the Quran where he says, and we have created all living creatures from water. And we know that our majority composition is liquid, is water. If we look to the earth, 60 or 70% of the earth itself is covered with water. So we know the essence of life is water. And without it, we wouldn't be able to sustain our existence. But that water itself we use to wash our bodies before we enter into the divine presence in our five daily prayers in order for us to understand that we need to reconnect with that which is pure. And you can't get anything more pure than H2O, the water that comes from the heavens, from the sky. When we do that, it's not simply a physical cleansing that we are doing. Like you might be dirty, physically dirty. Your clothes might be dirty. It's not simply a washing of that physical filth to prepare yourself for prayer. But the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him, says, with every drop of water that rolls off your skin when performing the ablution, sins are also falling off your skin, off your body. So the sins that your hand performed, the sins that your tongue performed when you wash your mouth, the sins that your ears performed, you may have heard someone lying, deceiving someone, tricking someone, backbiting, gossiping. These are all harmful, immoral things. Your eyes, you may have looked at something which you're not permitted to look at, something of a home of someone's private, you shouldn't be looking there, but you, you did that. So that's something that's considered immoral and wrong in the religion of Islam. Your feet may have taken you somewhere where you have earned the displeasure of God, or you may have trespassed someone's land, because in Islam we also have laws with, in relation to our day-to-day -day duties, our contractual obligations. There's a whole chapter in the fiqh, what we call the uh, encyclopedias of jurisprudence, that talk to what's permissible and what's not permissible to do. So all of that, we understand that the act of ablution is a means of purifying ourselves before we enter prayer. So when we enter prayer, we've purified ourselves both physically and spiritually, and then we stand. Now, when Muslims stands for prayer, for instance, they've got to find the direction of Mecca. Mecca is the place where Muslims believe was the first house of worship of God established on earth when Prophet Adam came onto earth and he rebuilt or he built this holy house that angels had already laid, laid down foundations for and Muslims all around the world will pray in direction of this house. 
Now, when they do that prayer, when they perform that prayer, and they're seeking to face their chest towards the direction of Mecca, wherever they are in the world, that's the physical direction. But there's also a spiritual focus and direction. And this is part of the dis discipline that Islam offers to its adherents. As you have faced your physical being towards the house of God, it's as though God is saying, and I want your heart to be directed to me in concentration. You've got 24 hours in a day where you're going to be busy with so many things, but for half an hour, I want you for me. That's the prayer itself. And the greater a person is able to achieve presence in prayer, the greater they will be able to achieve presence focus, discipline in other things and aspects of their life. They, don't, they can't do a good job in prayer, then they're going to struggle elsewhere in their life. Fasting, for instance, how does fasting help a, 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 a Muslim in their life? Fasting is about doing away for a period of time during the day with your essential needs. What are our essential needs of human beings? We need food, we need drink, and we also need to be with the other gender, in order to continue the human race. But God says, for 30 days, during the day, you're not allowed to do this. Someone might say, well, isn't that restrictive? Here, the approach of a Muslim is that if those things which are necessary for my existence, I'm refraining from, then that which is not necessary for my existence, which is immoral and an act of disobedience, then I should be more encouraged to stay away from it. So if I can stay away from that which is permissible, then the, the, the principle is that it should be easier for me now to stay away from that which is going to be wrong and sinful and moral. But the fasting itself is a means of discipline. So I'm able now, rather than being controlled by my ego, I control my ego. And so... I begin to gravitate outside my body and I begin to control my daily affairs rather than be controlled by the waves that face me in society. While we're on the subject of fasting, I just want to talk about Ramadan. Uh, what are the requirements for Ramadan? What should commanders think about, especially our soldiers when they're in the field? You know, they can be working 18, 20 hours a day. Can you give an explanation of Ramadan and, and, what, and what advice you have in, in regards to military service? So Ramadan comes in the ninth month of the Islamic year. The Islamic calendar follows a lunar calendar, and so there are 10 or 11 days in which it differs every year with the solar Gregorian calendar. Ramadan is an obligatory month in which Muslims are required to have two duties, one by day and one by night. The duty by day is to enter the act of fasting. Fasting is to abstain, and the duty by night is to busy oneself with additional prayer, invocations and devotion to God, reciting the Qur'an, standing in congregational prayer in a mosque, in a, uh, in a community. During the day, the fasting. Fasting commences before sunrise, what we call the break of dawn. Usually when the sun's disk reaches about 18 degrees below the eastern horizon, would be considered what we call the beginning of dawn, it differs wherever you are in the world, and all the way up until the setting of the sun. So for those hours, wherever you are in the world, could be anywhere between 12 to, you know, to 18 hours, and depending on the season. 
Some places are going to be winter, some places are going to be summer. But that's one of the beauties of the Muslims following a lunar calendar, is that if you're stuck in one place for your entire life, you're going to pass through two cycles, literally, because it takes about 33 or so years for the season to come round again as it was before. Uh, so that's an equal distribution of the time of, of Ramadan. In terms of what command needs to be uh, attentive to, the requirements of Muslim officers, is that it's going to be a little more stressful for them at the beginning of Ramadan as their bodies begin to transition and to, to adapt to a fasting day. That's why we say generally it's recommended that a Muslim has fasted before the month of Ramadan by a month at least, they begin to ease their body into fasting. So it's not going to be all of a sudden fasted Monday and a Thursday. These are recommended days. So command could perhaps advise their unit that maybe you should take on some voluntary fasting before the coming of the month of Ramadan to prepare your body for that month because it's going to be one day after the other. And uh, you may lose someone for you know, two or three days that just not, may not be able to focus. Once they get into the scheme of fasting, it becomes pretty normal. The body adjusts. And generally you'll find a person will be more attentive during the day of Ramadan, probably more towards the beginning. As they get towards sunset, their mind may be focused more on the breaking of the fast to try and avoid any strenuous or physical exertion uh, during the day, particularly if it's hot or they're exposed to direct sun. If there can be things that are, that are done in which they're going to be in the shade or they're going to be in a cooler type of environment, then that would be advisable. If, if they can, uh, if command can also see how they can adjust the hours of the day for that member. So they may want to get home, for instance, to uh, break their fast with family, which is something really virtuous in the month of Ramadan. Um, then they may need to knock off, you know, maybe half an hour earlier. Can they start another half an hour earlier the next day or an hour earlier the next day? Uh, they may need to be attending the mosque of an evening, uh, sometimes two hours, sometimes three hours, sometimes more, sometimes less. And so allowing that additional time for them to be able to go out and do what they need to do with the intent that they come back, because Ramadan is seen like a university. It's a spiritual self-discipline university that if they do it right, you're going to have someone who is a greater asset at the end of the month of Ramadan. So it's not simply a self-relationship with, with God, but it's preparing you for the rest of your um, of your year. It's also advisable that a Muslim wakes up well before dawn by about uh, an hour or so and has a pre-dawn meal. If someone begins the fast of Ramadan with, uh, during the day without having that pre-dawn meal, then they're probably going to get to midday and, you know, they'll be getting headaches. They may be close to, 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 to fainting, lacking on energy. But that pre-dawn meal that they have needs to be one where the energy is going to be released gradually throughout the day rather than it to be a, a high-carb, high-sugar intake. No, something that we know that's sort of more of a lower GI that is going to have that slow release of energy. So sometimes those discussions with health professionals, they'll be able to recommend what is suitable for that particular person in this climate, in this context. And to rehydrate themselves as well during the evening. Some people, it might be cold, and they don't rehydrate themselves during the evening. So they might just have a glass of water and that's it. And then come pre-dawn, they have a small meal, 
and uh, they begin their day. But because they didn't feel thirsty, they didn't replenish that lost water, but they still need to be reminded, you need to be drinking that which you would have drunk throughout the day, you need to be able to drink that throughout the night as well to make to make up. Just a, on a practical front, sometimes there are operational demands that may require uh, the member to break fast in order to be able to carry out military service or military training. Are there any exemptions that, that apply to this? Obviously, command is going to be keen to support wherever possible, but are there other exemptions if there is not an opportunity to provide that exemption? Uh, definitely travellers are exempt, and that is a open exemption. Any person that is not resident within the town in which they live and reside, they are travelled, they consider travellers, they've left the boundaries of their city beyond a distance of 81 kilometres from their city limits, then they would be technically considered a traveller. A traveller is permitted to break their fast, whether they need to or they don't, for work purposes or not. Just the mere fact that a person is travelling, there are additional conditions in terms of the time of the travel, the duration of the travel, but in general, there is that exemption. The other is if a person finds themselves uh, in a situation where they fear for their body, they fear for their life, they've got an illness, for instance, and that illness is going to uh, increase in its severity, uh, or they could be estimated to have a uh, remedy from that illness in a certain period of time, but if they fast, it's going to extend the period of time. So in conversation with health professionals, such people would be exempt from fasting. Sometimes those with chronic illness that prevents them from fasting, those with certain type of diabetes, prevented, you know, they'll be excused from fasting. A lady, for instance, that is uh, nursing her child that fears that her fasting is going to impact upon her health or the child's health. Uh, this is also a reason uh, exemption to be exempted from fasting. So definitely there are situations. My advice is that uh, a Muslim member should always have conversation not only with their, uh, their health professional, but also their local religious imam, uh, Muslim leader, who can advise on their specific situation and give personal advice on that. What considerations should we take in uh, when it comes time for Eid? Uh, so Eid is an Arabic word that means to repeat or that which recurs. So it's called Eid because it recurs. Every year it comes. Muslims have two specific Eids. One is called Eid al-Fitr, which is the Eid of breaking the fast, and this comes the first day after the end of Ramadan. So it's actually the first day of the next month, which we call Shawwal. So the first day of the 10th Islamic month is the day of what we call Eid al-Fitr, the Eid or the celebration of breaking the fast. The second Eid is the Eid that occurs about two and a half months after that, which is Eid al-Abha, the Eid or the celebration of the sacrifice, the sacrifice of Abraham and his son Ishmael, where God shows Abraham in a vision, in a dream, to slaughter his son. He comes to slaughter his son, and God instead sends down a ram from paradise, which Abraham slaughters instead, and his son is saved. And so Muslims remember that event with this, uh, what we call a sacrifice that they're recommended to do, and in some schools of Islamic jurisprudence, it becomes necessary to do. You slaughter a sheep, a goat, a camel, uh, a cow, uh, and you donate its meat to the poor and the needy in your locality. So that happens, that coincides with the Hajj, with the pilgrimage. So that second Eid, which is Eid al-Adha, the Eid of the sacrifice, 
occurs on the 10th day of the month of Dhul-Hijjah, which is the 12th month of the Islamic calendar. So we've got Eid al-Fitr, just after Ramadan, so just after the 9th month, so the first day of the 10th month, and then we've got Eid al-Adha, which is the 10th day of the 12th month. So just about two and, two and a bit months in between. In terms of considerations for Eid, it's a duty for a Muslim, and in some opinions highly recommended, to attend the communal prayer on the day of Eid. So it's a service. It's a prayer service. And so not only for men, but men, women, children, elderly, the entire community, you find them in traditional Muslim societies, they'll all be out to the mosque. And if the mosque doesn't fit them, they'll generally do it out in the open, in farmland, in parks, anywhere. They'll get together and they'll perform the prayer, which is two units of prayer, and they'll sit down and they'll listen to the service, the sermon delivered by the imam over there on the day of Eid, in which he will remind them of the virtues of the month of fasting, of the reward of God, of the self-discipline, and with regard to the pilgrimage in the second Eid, Eid al-Adha, the rules and the significance of why we sacrifice this animal, the purpose of feeding those who are poor and needy, the story of the sacrifice of Abraham and his son Ishmael, and that which God did and replaced, and the various sacred rites connected to those holy days. So definitely those two days, days that are given as time where a person goes, performs that religious prayer, and then it's recommended for them to go and visit family and relatives and friends in the community. So you will find villages of Muslims buzzing with people moving around from house to house, 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there, 20 minutes here, breakfast here, lunch here, cake here, biscuit here. It's just mass movement, like what you call locusts. Everyone's just moving, buzzing around, and people sometimes will see them, see each other multiple times during the day at different houses. And that's something that's highly recommended. Gift-giving as well on those days where parents and elderly will give gifts. Up until now, my grandfather, who's uh, over 80 years of age, gives money gift, currency, to my children. And so they wait every where they know they're going to come, they're going to get some money as their Eid gift on that day of Eid. And he sees it as because he's a person of authority and a person of respect that the kids and the grandchildren are all going to be waiting for that day where he's sitting down and he's handing them that. And I remember the same thing that my grandparents would do on the day of Eid. So it's something that's extremely symbolic and connects the young with the old as well. Great. Fantastic. How does the Islamic faith support defense capability? In defense, we want people to be courageous, we want people to serve, we want people to have integrity, we want people to be fair, we want people to have compassion, to be merciful. All of these are qualities which Islam seeks to instill in its members. Uh, the Prophet Muhammad says, a person who does not show mercy to others, mercy will not be shown to them. And of course, every Muslim wants God to be merciful to them in this world and hereafter. So if you're finding it difficult to forgive someone because of something that they did, that they wronged you, they took something from your right, they insulted you, they dealt with you in a particular way that wasn't appropriate, you've got a choice to forgive, not to forgive, to pardon, not to pardon, to respond in a way which is going to be quite harsh and severe. That's your choice. But there's a greater level, there's a greater response, and that's the response of beauty, that's a response of mercy, it's a response of having a heart that is wide enough, that is large enough to contain all people, just like the earth itself, the earth in its flatness, every person 
that who is good and that who is not good, that who is obedient, that who is not obedient, that who is benefiting others and that who is harming others. The earth accepts everyone. And so likewise, a Muslim is recommended in their heart to be able to accept everyone for who they are, to be in the service of others. This is an important concept for Muslims. There's a, again, a saying of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, where he says, he says, the best of people are those who show greatest benefit to others. And so therefore, what is it that other people benefit? In one, in, in one instance, removing a simple obstruction from another person's path is considered an act of faith. For the Prophet Muhammad says, faith is 70 odd branches. The highest is to say there's no God except Allah. And the lowest is to remove something that is obstructing someone's path. And so therefore, a branch, for instance, if I'm walking on the footpath and there's a branch overhanging, I look at the branch and I think, wow, someone was walking here, they didn't notice, they might poke their eye out. So I remove the branch, I cut the branch, so it's no longer going to harm anyone. Of course, assuming that it's not on private property, otherwise I need to seek permission. But generally, how is it that I can be beneficial to people so they don't harm themselves physically, but there's also spiritual harm as well. I need to ensure that no one is also, that no one harms another person in terms of their faith or their morals or their character. So all of these types of service, being the service of others, those that need food, those that need drink, those that need support, those that need psychological, moral, whatever type of support, what is it that I can do? What is it that I can facilitate for others? I need to be aware. I need to be able to see and able to hear because the Prophet Muhammad describes Muslims as being one ummah, like one nation, one community. And if any part of the, he says, like, it's like a body. If one part of your body is ill, is sick, then the rest of the body is going to remain awake in fever for the whole night. And so therefore, you must be connected with other people wherever they are, your unit, your team. You must have that connection such that if someone is in pain, you, don't, you can't wait until they ha put their hand up and say, I'm in pain, I need help. You need to be able to detect any signs of pain. What is it that I'm going to do to try and support that person, to try and alleviate that person's pain? Truthfulness, integrity, honesty, this idea of seeing lying and deception as being the opposite of that which is going to bring a person to a, in, a, in a journey to God. A person who lies, the Prophet Muhammad says, cannot be considered a true believer. So, you say one thing on your tongue, but you believe something else in your heart. That's not, that's not a sign of a believer. That's not a sign of a Muslim. In fact, he says a true Muslim is someone who other people are safe from his or her tongue and safe from his or her hand. So how are they safe from your tongue? You're not going to lie to them. You're not going to deceive them. You're not going to insult them. You're not going to swear at them. Safe from your hand. You're not going to harm them physically. You're not going to strike them. You're not going to take something that is not rightfully yours. So all of these principles that Islam seeks to instill in its followers can be directly applied in any unit, in any team, in any situation within ADA. And finally, how can a local commander support an adherent to the Islamic faith? First thing, just like adherents of all faiths, there's a spectrum of practice. So what one Muslim might feel is part of his faith and he or she needs to do, someone else might not. Um, different people have different levels of, of practice. I think it's, it's important to ask the question, what is it that you would like to see 
facilitated for you and your practice for you to feel comfortable. I think it's important to create that safe space where a person doesn't feel that anyone is going out of their way to accommodate them. I think that's the last thing that we want. But that can only happen with education and awareness. And the greater awareness command has of the expectations of a Muslim in their unit, that I think the greater comfort a Muslim will, will, will feel in coming into that space. If we look at some of the daily occurrences, prayer is going to be one that is going to be significant. So having a quiet prayer space to perform those prayers. So if a person is at a place for more than 24 hours, well, they've got five prayers that they're going to have to perform throughout the day. A place where they can perform their washing, their ablution, with fresh tap water that they can use. Now, if that's not available, there are exemptions where they can actually resort to dry earth. We call this dry ablution. So if you're out in the wilderness, there's no access to fresh water, that's fine. In fact, within Islam, if there's no water, you go and you tap your two hands on dry earth, sand that has dust. And once you wipe your face, and then second time, you tap your, hand, your hands on the dry earth and you wipe your arms. So there's always a way that you can perform worship if the uh, first option isn't available. So a quiet prayer space that uh, has the direction already calibrated where Mecca is. Some people, they get a sticker, an arrow, and they stick it on the ceiling, on the floor, for instance. So any person comes and enters that rock, I know that's the direction of Mecca. To have a Quran, Arabic with English translation, placed in that room so that if they need some time where they can reconnect with God, they've already got their uh, convenience, their holy book, uh, and a book of sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, where they can draw inspiration for those difficult times during their day-to-day -day routine. Food. Food is going to be a, a daily requirement. So Muslims uh, eat food that what is what we call permissible. Halal in Arabic, in the Arabic word, literally means, means permissible. There's no mystery about it. It's just an Arabic word that means that which is permissible. So halal applies to everything. The places that I can go to, the people that I can uh, marry. There are some people that I'm not allowed to marry. It's not permissible. So that was is not halal. So some people think, oh, halal is just food. No, halal is everything that is permissible for a Muslim. So ensuring that there's no pork or pig products, ensuring that there is no alcohol, ensuring that there is no unslaughtered, according to Islamic rights, animal products within that food. So any animal-derived products need to have been derived from animals that were slaughtered according to that which is permissible in Islamic law. So that would generally be considered permissible food for that Muslim. So to prepare that, to ensure that you know that is there to advise them, yes, we've got this and it's prepared uh, for you. Sometimes on deployments and operations, that may be difficult, may be challenging, particularly with dehydrated food. So having that awareness beforehand, before deployment, that these are the type of options that are available. There's some vegan options, there's some vegetarian options, but I think awareness and having those open conversations so people aren't surprised, oh, this isn't halal and it's not certified, therefore I can't eat it. No, we have the conversation beforehand, meaning these are the alternatives and let's see what is going to be most suitable for you in your circumstance. Just another question you mentioned before halal. Can you describe to us what halal is? When it comes to animals, Muslims are, per are permitted to eat certain types of animals that are slaughtered in a particular way. Generally, the animals that are most abundant uh, and Muslims will consume are cattle, sheep and goats, camel. They're probably the most uh, frequently accessed. 
in order for that animal to be consumed, it must be uh, slaughtered, slaughtered in a way which the animal is still alive when it is slaughtered. Sometimes there are electric shocks that are used for an animal to a point where if that electric shock has taken the life of the animal and then they are slaughtered by a blade, that would be considered, that is called carrion. That's a dead animal, that's dead flesh. So that wouldn't be considered halal. As long as the experts tell us that which was done upon the animal before the slaughter by the blade, the animal is still alive. As long as they tell us the animal is still alive. That was just a temporary period in which it was without movement, but it was still alive. In some places, there might be gassing chambers for animals where they pass through. If they pass through a gassing, gassing chamber and it kills the animal, and then that chicken, for instance, is slaughtered, that chicken is no longer halal. Mm -hmm. It's no longer permissible because that's considered a dead animal. Muslims are not permitted to eat dead animals. There are exceptions. Exceptions of fish. So fish does not have to be slaughtered. So if you've got problems in terms of sourcing meat protein, one easy way out is fish. Any Muslim can eat fish, and it doesn't have to be halal. The perfect thing is tuna. For instance, canned tuna. Excellent. Now, some tins of tuna says halal, but even if it didn't say halal, if it's just tuna in there, there's nothing else mixed in it, you know, there's no, no issues generally with it. But there are different opinions within Islamic schools of jurisprudence of the crustaceans within the sea. So prawns, for instance, crab. Some Muslims, their uh, uh, legal opinions stipulate that, that, no, they are different to fish. But generally, fish, no issues, doesn't need to be slaughtered. In terms of the actual slaughter with the blade, it must be one strike of the blade at the throat and a very sharp blade, such that, that with that one strike, the animal with the least amount of suffering, least amount of pain, is going to have its life ended. So one last question, Aman. Can you tell me about physical contact between men and women? Uh, Muslims have a, a robust code of dress and contact between genders. So Muslim women will wear what's, what's called hijab. Hijab is an Arabic word which means a covering. So it covers her beauty from the outside world and is safe for those who are closest to her, specifically her husband. Men themselves are also recommended to have a covering. They've got also a minimum covering of their, of their body, not to the extent of the woman. However, they are also recommended to lower their gaze, meaning not to go out and to uh, indulge in lustful glances of members of the opposite sex. So there are clear guidelines to both genders. When it comes to physical contact between a man and a woman, a man that is unrelated to a woman in Islam is not permitted to come into contact physically with her unless there is a barrier. That's not permissible. So even, for instance, my wife, before I married her, she would have been considered unrelated to me. She's permissible for me to marry uh, because she's not my sister, she's not my mother, she's not my auntie, she's not my niece, she's not my grandmother. Those five women would be considered relatives to me in that I would be permitted to come into physical contact with them. Why? Because they're not permitted for me to marry. So that's the general rule. If I can marry them, then uh, I'm not permitted to contact with, be in contact. If I can't marry them, then there is that permission of that physical contact because they're considered close family. A man and woman, when they come together and they greet each other, for instance, and they shake hands, 
I wouldn't, I wouldn't be permitted to shake hands. So a Muslim man wouldn't be permitted to shake hands with a any woman. It's not just Muslim or non-Muslim or any other religion. This, this is the, this is the the code of conduct uh, within within Islam. Now, definitely, there will be a spectrum of practice. So not everyone will take the whole package and apply it in that same way. So there will be some Muslim men that have got no issues in shaking hands with with women. There will be some women, Muslim women, that have got no issues in shaking hands with a Muslim, with, with, a, with, a, with a strange man, with a foreign man. But the predominant position within Islamic jurisprudence is that these are the guidelines and these are the boundaries, the physical boundaries between uh, between man and woman. Does it prohibit verbal communication? No, it doesn't. So you're permitted to verbally communicate, but to communicate with modest language, not in language which is going to incite lust, because Islam seeks to build the family unit, the husband, the wife, the mother, the father, the children, and anything that it sees is going to likely risk or jeopardize the stability of the family units in those outside conversations or interactions, it places boundaries. Not saying that people are bad, but saying we just don't want to place ourselves in a situation where it could potentially lead us to something which is going to compromise that sacred family unit. Okay, along the same the same lines. We're in defense Accidents happen. What should we consider uh, when we're carrying out uh, medical procedures and the likes on people of the opposite sex? When it comes to medical procedures, the recommendation within Islamic uh, law is that a, a male medic will see a male patient, and likewise a female medic will see a female patient. That is the ideal. In the situation where we are out somewhere and we don't have access to a member of the same gender. What do we do? We only uncover or touch that which is necessary. But before I get there, we utilize gloves. So gloves is a barrier. So if the medical professional is going to use gloves, then he's not going to come into physical contact. But at the same time, if anything of the body of the woman, Muslim woman, needs to be uncovered, if it's 10 centimeters that needs to be uncovered, I don't uncover 15 centimeters of her body. Not permissible. So it's not like, oh, it doesn't matter, it's only five centimeters. No, no, we're not talking about quantity, but we're talking about a code of conduct mm. and a law which deserves to be respected because that's that person's worldview. And since it's that person's worldview, we don't want to place them in a position where they're going to feel compromised in their faith and their practice. That, that was absolutely fa fantastic. Thank you. I could sit here and speak to you for hours and ask you a thousand more questions, but we will cut it there. Uh, thank you very much, and I, I'm sure our listeners will get a lot out of it. If you have any questions, please feel free in contacting soldiercove at gmail.com, and we'll be sure to get back to you. Don't forget to download the Cove app. It's PME in your pocket, anywhere, anytime. <laughs>